Okay. We made the connection between Minnesota Great. and Australia. Okay, what time do you have? Um, it's 6 p.m. here, I think, on okay. Thursday. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you could do this. Thank you. I watched yes, you. I'm... I watched the um, the webcast of the Council on Foreign Relations event, and I just thought you were terrific. Oh, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, I'm going to be there next month for something. Oh, on, okay. Other lines. Um, do you have any questions of me before we get going about the program? Anything? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, this is uh, a whole program, a uh, series on um, religion around the world, or um, yeah, um, more it, on China. No, it, well, the program is on. It's called Speaking of Faith. It's uh, the tagline is Public Radio's program about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. And mm-hmm. um, we cover. We don't. We don't have a lot of religious authorities on the program, but we try to look at how religious uh, ideas and spiritual ethics, um, how how they are relevant in many spheres of life. I talk to a lot of scientists. Um, mm. um, I'm drawing a blank. You know, we we talk about mm-hmm. issues of health and medicine and politics, um, but we kind of come at religion from an angle, and we try to mm-hmm. open people's imaginations up. Um, also about traditions that they may think they know and don't. And I think religion mm-hmm. in China falls into that category. Okay. So this is something we've wanted to do for a while, and I've been looking for for the voice. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> so we're on about 200 uh, public radio stations in the United States, and we have a big website. So. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, sh- I should have uh, checked out your website, and yeah. I used to listen to NPR you- you don't have a mu- as much of a presence here in Australia. No. But they, they do use some of your mm-hmm. clips and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, should we start? Uh, I'm hearing a slight echo, but let me see if I yes. move back. Are you hearing an echo uh, as well? Yes, a little, yeah. Um, okay, let's try. I think I'm fine, actually. We can hear the paper uh, moving, oh, so be careful okay. with that when we're talking. This is not a live interview. We we get to have a real conversation. So um, if you do want to stop or circle back to something, that's okay. And okay. this is what I thought we would do. Um, as I say, I, I want to open people's imaginations and give them some information to work with in terms of um, this notion of the religiosity of Chinese culture um, historically and now. And mm-hmm. I think I want to spend some time, I, I really like how in your scholarship, and this is very much the spirit of this program as well, I mean, even when you are um, delivering scholarly information, you tend to do it in a narrative way, which makes it accessible and interesting to others. So I, w- I just want to encourage you, I'm speaking to you mm-hmm. as a scholar, but also as a human being, and you know, it's great when you tell your stories or share your reactions to things. I want that. <laughs> um, okay. Okay. And uh, I think we'll spend... What I'd like to do initially is spend some time really telling this story that you um, are immersed in of of religion in China as a development. Um, and I, I mean, I have, you know, you know, I've been doing a lot of reading, so I'm going to kind of, you know, we'll trace that together. Um, and then also reflect on some of what's happening in the present and what that means and how people might make sense of it. Does that sound okay? 
Okay. Sure. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like to start just with a little bit of information about you and your story. Um, did Did you grow up in Taiwan? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I um, was born in Taiwan, but I left Taiwan when I was five and a half. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Did, was there a religious tradition in your upbringing? Um, it was more uh, observing of um, rituals. Um, I remember as a little girl, um, we would um, every once in a while honor um, ancestors, mm-hmm. and we would set out a meal uh, and uh, elaborate meal and uh, one I just have one sort of childhood memory where uh, there was this elaborate meal that was set up and um, we opened the doors to allow the ancestors to come in and enjoy the meal and there was a kind of hushed silence and uh, the wind came through and blew uh, the chopsticks around a bit. Mm. And my mother was really startled and, and said, oh, the, the, the ancestors are here. Be careful. You know, you, you better be a good girl or else they <laughs> might uh, get you. And that really, you know, instilled awe into me. And um, uh, I, I really felt like I was in the presence of the ancestors. So mm. we, we, we were in a pretty secularized uh, family. They, they were educated, so they didn't, um, um, you know, they weren't like uh, ordinary uh, rural families or peasants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you your know, parents so it, had grown up in mainland China, is that correct? Yes, right, right. Uh-huh. Um, and, yeah, and was what... Um, had had they been in mainland China? Well, when were you born then? And you don't have to I was tell me how in, old you're... born in um, fifty seven. So, okay, in so they they yeah. left some time ago. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. they arrived in China in forty nine with the uh, Kuomintang uh, retreat. Okay, uh, my father was um, in college in uh, China at the time, and uh, he could speak English because he learned it from missionaries, and he was needed by the Kuomintang to, to do some interpreting. And so that's how he got over. And my mother uh, fled the Japanese uh, from Nanjing. She was uh, in Nanjing, and um, the Japanese were invading, so mm. uh, she went to the wartime capital of the Kuomintang, uh, mostly by foot, so it was uh, very hard uh, on her, and, uh, and that's how she went to China too. Her family was uh, relatively well-to-do, and uh, people who were like that, you know, generally felt very nervous about the communists. So, <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Hmm. So yeah, we. I have relatives on both sides in Taiwan and uh, mainland China. Oh, you do. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious what has drawn you recently to focus on religiosity in China, this particular aspect of Chinese culture and history. Well, uh, I didn't set out with the intention to study uh, religiosity or religious practice, but I stumbled upon the importance of it in field work. So I received a National Science Foundation uh, research grant to study civil society in China, and I wanted to look at rural area, a rural area, uh, because most civil society studies have been uh, done in uh, urban areas. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I wanted to get back to sort of the roots of anthropology uh, and uh, work in a rural area. And I was uh, 
touring around uh, eastern China with a Chinese friend who took me to Wenzhou. Uh, it's a coastal area uh, in Zhejiang province in uh, southeast China. And uh, pretty much sort of across the Taiwan Straits from Taiwan. It's a bit north of Taiwan. But uh, culturally, it's uh, par part of a larger common culture of a coastal China that is shared by both Taiwan and um, the mainland side. Mm. And um, I um, discovered that all the uh, really authentic um, sort of uh, non-government organizations and true uh, voluntary uh, associations uh, that would really come under the category of civil society rather than these sort of state-penetrated kind of uh, organizations such as stamp collecting society and mm. um, Chinese Wenlian, uh, um, kind of what's called lit, lit uh, what's the English translation, lit, uh, literature or um, associations, okay. uh, feder uh, literature federation. Um, these were state-funded and had a kind of uh, official culture about them. And to me, they were not real um, civil society. Uh, but what were real civil society to me uh, all had this religious character. They were um, lineages, lineage organizations that um, had experienced a revival hmm. in, in the 1980s. Uh, they were um, temple associations um, oriented around various uh, deities uh, where uh, local people came together, uh, made um, donation, uh, undertook donation drives, funding drives, uh, collected a lot of um, voluntary contributions from the local community, from every family. Um, and they were also Christian churches in this area. There's a lot of Christians. Hmm. They were also um, 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 let's see uh, so lineages, um, deity associations, um, also um, Taoist um, organizations, mm -hmm. uh, Taoist uh, practices. Uh, ritual practices, and also Buddhist uh, temples and mm. Buddhist monasteries uh, in these areas. So all of these, it seemed, uh, had um, this kind of um, indigenous civil society or traditional culture civil society uh, aspect about them. And um, uh, one, they received virtually no funding from the government, mm -hmm. either the local government or central government or provincial government. Uh, two, their culture was so outside of official discourse, state discourse. Uh, they were in general not um, given to this kind of uh, nationalistic uh, pronouncements that is... Um, what you get in the uh, public schools and uh, educational system and, and um, you know, public media. Right. Um, so, uh, and then they were um, concerned with uh, local um, communities, local community identity, uh, and uh, with local families uh, in the extended sense of family, not, not just nuclear family, but extended family all the way to lineage organizations mm. that trace uh, large kinship groups back to a common founding ancestor. Right. 
Um, and they were concerned with connecting this world and the divine beyond uh, with uh, larger systems in the cosmos and the afterlife and, and so forth. So uh, that really uh, allows them to be outside this kind of state official nationalistic discourse hmm. uh, because they're concerned with, uh, you know, life, human life uh, uh, in this more transcendent sense rather than a very kind of temporal sense of building up the nation hmm. and, uh, you know, economic development and our reputation in the world and things like that. Hmm. Now, you write about um, encountering an attitude in academic circles that I think is prevalent in Western culture and American culture, certainly at large, a notion that China is and has been historically an essentially secular, pragmatic culture, that, th- that this kind of, as you say, this kind of civil society on the ground that has to do with all kind of very diverse religiosity um, is really not, not known, not on the radar of uh, Western observers, Western Citizens, mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think um, I was talking about how uh, due to um, the encounters with the modern West uh, uh, in the 19th century, Chinese uh, educated elites have sort of forgotten that uh, China... Um, had uh, uh, a very rich and sophisticated and diverse uh, religious life as well as ritual life. Uh, And there was a will kind of to forget uh, in the modern period of the 20th century on the part of uh, the educated class. And I think, um, you know, in the 19th century, um, uh, due to the... um, trauma of uh, encountering this uh, uh, powerful military and economic force from the West, um, the Chinese-educated elite uh, became very nationalistic uh, in order to um, counter the West and build up China's own national strength. Uh, And in this process, they ironically absorbed uh, three crucial attitudes from the West— uh, even as they were um, defying the West. Right. I mean, le- and, and this mm-hmm. is such a fascinating point that you make, and I'd like to, um, I want to make it slowly. Because, you know, one thing that I that I learned from your writing and others is that, um, I mean, what you're saying is that, that the, to the extent that there is um, a, an amnesia about religion in China, even among Chinese leaders now, um, mm-hmm. And to, and also to a certain extent, c- kind of judgmental, repressive um, ideas about religion in China now mm-hmm. stem back to a century in which China learned about religion um, from the from the West. Um, right. Yeah. And, and it's also, the irony of history. Yeah. So, so tell yes. that story uh, because it's a very yeah. new idea. Um, starting with the um, missionaries, I guess, with the Jesuits. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, uh, the Jesuits uh, were much earlier in the um, 16th, 17th uh, centuries, and mm-hmm. they were actually quite open-minded 
uh, in fact, uh, they were quite willing to accommodate uh, a lot of Chinese culture, including ancestor worship, uh, as uh, legitimate and not um, superstitious and idolatrous. Um, And it was really the 19th century when um, China lost the Opium Wars of the 1840s and was forced uh, in a subsequent uh, humiliating treatment by the West to open its doors to uh, trade with the West, and that's when all the treaty ports were set up, including Hong Kong and uh, Shanghai, uh, and where uh, you have this uh, influx of uh, Western um, missionaries coming in. And these were Protestant missionaries, I think. Yes. Uh In the 19th century, there was a kind of muscular Protestantism that moved into China, Uh, different from the previous um, Jesuits. The Protestant missionaries tended to be a bit more narrow-minded and... um, because there, it was also in the 19th century that you have the industrialized West becoming much more sure of itself and even arrogant, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they imparted, um, the missionaries and the Western um, traders and travelers, imparted certain attitudes towards to uh, the Chinese elite, uh, their attitudes of dismissal and um, denigration towards um, traditional... Yeah, mm-hmm. towards traditional Chinese culture, traditional Chinese um, popular religion. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what the nationalistic Chinese educated elite who was trying who were trying to build up China, strengthen China to repel the West, they got this idea that they had to kill traditional culture in order to modernize. Mm. They got this idea from the West. Right. Um, so the three um, important attitudes that they absorbed from Westerners at that time was one, uh, a contempt for what was called idolatry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see this is kind of like <laughs> Western missionary kind of talk because they right. went to China, they found all these I- icons and um idols of uh, deities, right. you know, in Chinese temples, you have, uh, you know, China has such, it's a very polytheistic uh, religious system in popular Chinese religion. You have tons and tons of uh, uh, deities and uh, goddesses and gods uh, sitting on thrones, um, uh, major gods and minor gods and uh, nature gods and uh, m- most gods were at one time human beings right. uh, who did something exemplary and then later were canonized. Um, so the educated elite one abs- absorbed this contempt for idolatry and, and that, what the they word superstition, superstition, right, is what gets right. thrown around. Mm-hmm. Superstition was introduced from the West. Uh, And its history in the West is tied in with the Protestant Reformation that regarded the Catholics as superstitious and overly (laughs) ritualistic. Uh That was one thing about the Protestant uh, in China is that they thought that the Chinese were so into ritual. This reminded them of those uh, Catholics who were oh, into this so meaningless ritual. Right, right. You know, Chinese is um, Chinese culture is a highly ritualistic culture, mm-hmm. uh, including the imperial state. It was endless uh, state sacrifices. Ritual was highly important to Confucian thought. 
and practice. Confucius himself, most of the five uh, Confucian classics and the four books of Confucius that are left to us uh, are all about ritual practice, describing different forms of um, ritual. So, And that's not the idea of Confucianism that comes down now. Right. Uh, That's because of the whole 19th century where Confucianism kind of... um, reinvented itself as a philosophy because that was regarded as more civilized and advanced. Hmm. And um, so from that was then part on, of the same dynamic then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get rid of the ritual practice because that's seen as more backward uh, and useless and, you know, you know, remake yourself more as humanism, mm-hmm. as a moral philosophy. And um, but actually that is only part of Confucianism. Right. You know, um, I, I have to say this this phenomenon of secularization um, uh, is common. What has been common in the last um, half century, century across the world, um, not religion. You know, this is something scholars are waking up to and and cultures are waking up to that religion didn't go away. But elites in cultures across the world um, did become secularized uh, under Western influence, post-Enlightenment influence. But I think it, it's a bit surprising to me that this, was so, that this happened also to this extent in China because um, we tend to think of China as more impervious to Western influence. And what you're describing is a phenomenon um, that happened mm-hmm. to the same extent in other places. Yeah, I, I would say that, uh, you know, um, China was rather late compared to Japan in dealing with the Western intrusion. Uh, Japan in the Meiji Restoration, 1860s, uh, immediately uh, started to make um, big reforms. Uh, but China was, because it had been the number one in Asia for so long, centuries and millennia, uh, it was a bit complacent and really didn't face up to the threat uh, until rather late. So the nationalistic uh, elites were in a, you know, um, a hurry to catch up. To, so there was a kind of rush. And, and so China took the path of revolution. Uh, this is to them, you know, for them, it, was, it made sense. It was the fastest way to change things. And you had to change things in a really radical, you know, uh, upside down, top, you know, turn everything upside down kind of way. Hmm. Um, and that's what China did, which is a very different path to modernity than Japan. Um, and, and China's intellectuals, I was going to continue with the list of three crucial attitudes right. absorbed. Okay. Absorbed scientism and evolutionism. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, they really believed uh, that science was the answer and that science was totally opposed to uh, religiosity. Right. Again, and they sec- took uh, that they took that notion from the West of r- rationality and the superiority of scientific right, knowledge. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also uh, they absorbed uh, completely this notion of unilinear social evolutionism and progress that uh, all human societies went through stages of development uh, and uh, the the development uh, was towards progress, uh, liberation by science and technology. Um, Of course, you know, now that we have... Problems like uh, global climate change, we understand the arrogance of our ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, China still, in a sense, because uh, its crucial um, 
uh, changing point was in the 19th century. It's still kind of in that grip of that discourse, uh, and progress is still very much accepted. Uh, very widely uh, in both official and uh, popular you mean uh, realms. Progress, Notion of progress. progress this is kind it, of is optimism. It, is equated with and is equated with modernity and, and sci- yeah. scientific yeah, rationality. That, y- yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That uh, uh, we can, through human and uh, human um, uh, sort of technology and science and uh, social engineering, we can totally. Uh, save ourselves. There's this kind of uh, uh, belief in the um, sort of um, unquestionable belief in the ability of science and technology to to solve everything Mm. Uh, that I think in the West uh, we've come to question that much more. But (laughs) uh, in China, you know, uh, it's still... uh, not as questioned as much, oh. I'm afraid. Yeah, but they got all this from the West, right. um, so it's uh, ironic. Uh, and they they're actually sitting on this incredible traditional cultural resource um, of traditional ways of thought and thinking and uh, philosophies that would have really a major role to play in modernity. Mm. And, and you mean in, in counterbalance, right? Uh-huh. Can counterbalance so much of the excesses Mm -hmm. of uh, radical economic development and unchecked uh, growth and expansion and pollution of the environment and so forth. Um, You know, traditional philosophies uh, and uh, approaches and rituals uh, such as Taoism is very much uh, uh, into harmony with the natural forces of the cosmos and with uh, nature. Uh, Taoism uh, which is very much an ancient uh, Chinese uh, religious form, has a great role to play, I think, in Chinese modernity. Uh, but it, right now, it's still uh, kind of in a fledgling growth uh, period of uh, after suffering uh, so much decimation in, over the course of the 20th century. Hmm. This is um, some language, this is a description of yours, uh, that Taoism is at once magical technology, textual philosophy, self-cultivation, medical practice, and collective rituals. Yes, that's uh, a, right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very <laughs> yes. intriguing definition. <laughs> yeah, well, well, it has this um, uh, tradition of uh, Taoist hermits who go off into the mountains in remote areas and live in nature and pursue uh, self-cultivation and uh, meditation. Uh, and they, they, they live very healthy uh, lives, uh, eating very basic, simple foods. Uh, they're really into longevity, and that's part of, so self-cultivation is both spiritual cultivation as well as bodily cultivation, because they're really into the physical body also. And Taoism uh, helped to give uh, birth and shaped the course of uh, traditional Chinese medicine, which is uh, an extremely viable medical uh, system of treatment and um, um, is is increasingly recognized around the world right uh, as for its uh, abilities and as as Christian influenced Western culture I think um, recognizes the kind of the extreme mind body dualism um, and then sees in 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 Chinese medicine and Chi- and da- and Taoism as you describe it uh, a different mm-hmm. model. 
Yes, right. It's uh, definitely mind and body are interconnected and uh, part of one thing mm. in uh, traditional Chinese uh, medicine as well as Taoism and much of traditional Chinese thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, something else that I think um, this is where people in the West have to stretch their imaginations. We tend to think of countries and cultures and nations, or let's say Western European and, and North American nations being having, I mean, not being, uh, not being theocracies, not being a religious state, uh, but having, <clears throat> being defined by Christianity, by one religion. And yes. there is in China this pluralism um, that is very striking and different and real um, of mm-hmm. you know, the five world religions that are accepted, but but this vast uh, landscape of, as you call it, religiosities. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, well, in um, imperial China, uh, the state did make... Um, vigorous attempts to unify the whole culture. Uh, The state had uh, a monopoly of access to heaven, the supreme deity, Tian, uh, and only the emperor could sacrifice and commune with uh, heaven, and Mm -hmm. he was regarded as the son of heaven. So you do have some kind of centralization to the religious system built in, and uh, the centralized state uh, had uh, six ministries, one of which uh, was called the Ministry of Rights, Mm -hmm. uh, that oversaw uh, religion and education uh, throughout the land and, and ritual throughout the land. And a local area, if they discovered uh, a local deity, could petition the state to have this deity recognized and um, absorbed into the official state canon of gods, uh, pantheon of gods. And... Um, and the state would uh, investigate and, you know, kind of like uh, the Catholic uh, Church or the Vatican would if- uh, <laughs> undertake yeah, uh-huh. research to uh-huh. see if this person was worthy of uh, becoming hmm. a saint. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the Chinese imperial state uh, did that. So there was some centralizing mechanisms. But on the whole, one would also have to say that the imperial state was rather flexible, that even if it chose not to recognize a local deity, that deity... Uh, can um, still be allowed to go on at the local level, uh, wouldn't receive any state funding for their temple, uh, and uh, you know the local community who worshipped that deity wouldn't be uh, so glorified uh, or elevated, but uh, they could still go on. So there was a flexibility uh, built into the system. So long as you didn't make the state um, um, fear Uh, that you were going to uh, mount some kind of uh, religiously inspired millenarian rebellion Mm -hmm. that would topple the uh, ruling house and start up a new dynasty, then you were pretty much let, let alone. And that, that was a system. But, you know, throughout all the centuries, uh, China has such a long history. You know, Buddhism came in uh, at the beginning of uh, the, the Han Dynasty that mm-hmm. was about uh, contemporary with Roman times. And then you had Islam coming in through the Silk Road, uh, both the 
landed Silk Road from the northwest as well as the later maritime Silk Road um, by the sea through southeast uh, mm. China. And um, and then, of course, you had uh, Christianity coming in later. So, yeah, it's received a lot of uh, the world religions. Um, what happened to this? these diverse but and vibrant impulses during... Um the era of Chairman Mao in communism. Where, where did they go? Yeah. Well, that's a sad chapter of of uh, Chinese history. Right. Uh, one, also, but one needs to remember that um, the uh, sort of communist uh, hostility towards religion and um, local uh, deity cults uh, and uh, Buddhist monks and nuns and and so forth, and as well as Christian. Um, priests, uh, did not start with the communists. It's the uh, end point of a whole line of development that started in the 19th century with radical secularization, first by the educated elite in the 1920s with the May 4th movement. What was the May Uh, 4th movement? You write about that. Tell me about that. Uh, the May 4th movement uh, started in uh, 1919 uh, when um, uh, China received such a humiliation. Uh, After the end of World War I, there was the Versailles Treaty amongst the Western nations that decided to award um, Japanese-controlled Shandong province to Uh, I'm sorry, that uh, decided to award the German-controlled Shandong province, uh, which uh, is the home um, town of Confucius, uh, lies there. Uh, Shandong province was given by the Western powers to Japan Hmm. without consulting China. Uh, And uh, that triggered uh, a lot of anger amongst the uh, nationalist activists and students uh, and educated uh, people in urban areas of China. And uh, there were a series of uh, boycotts, demonstrations that led to a uh, cultural movement called uh, May 4th Movement mm-hmm. in which um, there was an effort to learn the culture of the modern West uh, through translated novels, uh, importing um, Western uh, philosophy, social philosophy. Um, and um, so it was a very kind of pro-Western modernization uh, movement uh, centered in urban areas, uh, especially amongst educated people. And that was also the time when Confucius was, and Confucian culture was trashed uh, as being responsible for China's backwardness. Oh, I see. And when religion was maligned as uh, uh, where, you know, China had to suppress all this backward uh, spiritual aspects of itself because it was not contributing to national development and modernization. Okay. Uh, you know, I interview- and so yeah, this kind of se- uh, secular attitude, uh, the the um, the urgency that was felt for building up national strength in um, uh, military strength and industrial strength uh, at the cost of traditional culture. Uh, 
that that whole um, way of thinking uh, ran throughout 20th century China. The communists mm, were the most extreme about it, but the Kuomintang before them also carried out state secularization campaigns. They also sent uh, troops uh, uh, out into the countryside to smash idols, uh, and they also confiscated uh, temples and uh, Buddhist and Taoist uh, temples and monasteries and deity temples. The communists were just the most extreme and radical, and I would say the Cultural Revolution period was the most um, destructive because right. it was a reign of terror. You know, um, I, I once interviewed An Shimin, the novelist, and she she t- she's written a lot about <clears throat> about her experiences growing up during the Cultural Revolution, and... Um, she talked to me about how Mao manipulated um, quite effectively it, something that is essentially a religious and spiritual impulse to to be uh, to be good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I mean, is that do you also do you think that that is um, is a fair analysis of you know just one aspect of that very complicated time? I mean, she she did help me yeah. see that a bit differently. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I I do think that uh, there's a lot of uh, spiritual and religious aspects to the, what I would call the cult of Mao. Mm-hmm. And I've written about the cult of Mao mm-hmm. uh, in my first book. Um, that, um, And I think that you can only have that cult of Mao uh once you've decimated um all the different outlets for spirituality and religiosity mm. uh, when you've closed up all those traditional outlets right uh so uh mao was definitely larger than life people there were uh, a lot of people who really believed that he was superhuman that he had superhuman powers that uh, he would live to the the um, age of 135 that with his long earlobes he was uh, you know already selected as uh, somebody who was sacred who had some kind of special destiny Uh, and uh, there was this kind of sacrificial element to the way that uh, ordinary people uh, would sacrifice everything for him or for the idea that he represented revolution, salvation of China, mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. Uh, people would pin Mao buttons to their skins, not just to mm. their clothing, mm. but uh, and people would, you know, tattoo Mao images uh, to their skins, uh, and people would sacrifice and and donate uh, labor, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, uh, hard work, just uh, for him. Uh, there was such dedication, and people would cry true tears for Mao. So there's this religious element that has to be recognized right. about and, that. And uh, you know, and so under in communist ideology, religion was a feudalist uh, uh, creation that had to be put aside. I mean, I was very interested to read that. For example, the Taoist priesthood or the relationships of the Buddhist Sangha, the relationships of authority uh, within the religious traditions were labeled exploitative and that that was one of the justifications by which they were dismissed and dismantled. 
Right. Uh, that was uh, the main uh, dismantling uh, started in uh, the 1950s with the land reform. And because uh, a lot of land uh, was owned by monasteries and temples, Taoist and Buddhist, right. but especially Buddhist, uh, they were ripe uh, as uh, they were targets for land reform. Uh, and so they, the um, Buddhist and Taoist monks were portrayed uh, as, uh, um, you know, landowners. They were landlords who okay. rented out their land to tenant farmers. Um, and so that was that kind of decollectivization of the uh, religious properties of Buddhist uh, temples and monasteries and Taoist was uh, very uh, detrimental to these religious institutions. And of course... They had no, mo no more means of sustaining themselves. And of course, mm -hmm. for uh, communist ideology, these monks, they're idle uh, people. They're non-productive laborers. Right. They're <laughs> sitting there living off of tenant mm -hmm. rents. And all they're doing is uh, praying, chanting, and meditating. Right. They are not, not um, doing anything. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So I think um, the it, it was in 1959 that um, China incorporated Tibet uh, militarily. And uh, now there were many reasons for that, but this was also part of the justification, what we're, what we're describing here. And I'm I'm curious about uh, you know you describe how many Chinese were very caught up in this really religious fervor and I mean was that that uh, incorporation of Tibet also something um, that seemed comprehensible and 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 justified to to average Chinese people for for those reasons. Um. Yeah, uh, the the Tibet question uh, is very complicated, mm -hmm. and I I'm not definitely not an authority on on the history of Tibet, but I think that uh, the nationalistic fervor in China amongst ordinary people uh, is definitely there, and uh, Tibet experienced a great deal of uh, religious destruction in the Cultural Revolution period. Mm -hmm. uh, this was not something that was uh, necessarily just, uh, you know, directed uh, by the center in Beijing. It was a lot of, uh, you know, spontaneously organized Red Guard groups from all over China who went to Tibet and uh, they were um, unmonitored and they just wreaked uh, destruction. Uh, so much of the uh, precious uh, uh, religious properties uh, in Tibet were um, destroyed and decimated. Um, I think it's also because in throughout the 20th century, China itself had gone through so much secularization and its uh, attitudes towards these traditional religions uh, were had become so altered that when they arrived in when Chinese uh, went to Tibet in the 50s uh, and 60s during the Cultural Revolution, what they encountered was a culture so different from their own because Tibetans mm. are very religious, uh, much more so than the Han people had become. Uh, they had not undergone the 20th century secularization. Right that uh, the rest of China had. And so when the Han Chinese went to Tibet, I think that 
they were just struck by how quote unquote backward the Tibetans were, and how quote unquote superstitious and quote <laughs> unquote words feudal they were. Right. And so for the Han people, they were liberating the, the uh, Tibetans from their own ignorance hmm. uh, and bringing them forward into the 20th century. So there is this discourse of liberation of the Tibetan people from their overlords. Now Tibet did have a very hierarchical society. Uh, there were there is. I think some evidence of uh, slavery, just as there is uh, evidence of slavery in China, uh, not um, you know that uh, widespread, but there were. Um, so, so you know the what the uh, Han Chinese got from the Europeans, this notion of social evolutionism, mm. and then they had their um, Stalin Stalinist version, which is uh, primitive communism, feudalism. Um, you know, capitalism and socialism. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, primitive communism, slavery, then feudalism, then capitalism, hmm. and then socialism. Hmm. The Chinese uh, thought that the Tibetans belonged to the age of slavery, and they had yet to make it to feudal society. And oh. so the Chinese were doing them a favor by, you know, speeding up their economic development. Right. And I mean, I think this is really important. As you say, the issue of Tibet is extremely complex and, and difficult um, and sensitive, but... Uh, and, you know, what you're describing is not something that was um, t- t- utterly cynical. Um, I mean, you know, however misguided yes. and tragic uh, this was, um, uh-huh. there were all kinds of complex human dynamics going on that also had a long, long history. And yeah. as you're saying, yeah. that this, some of the seeds for this had been planted by the way yeah. Europeans... Us, um, actually taught the Chinese right. in the 19th century, yeah. To and, and at that time, it's kind of ironic because uh, today the West is uh, uh, has this... Uh, a very easy line uh, against China about the freedom of religion. Mm-hmm. But it, we just need to remember that a lot of these attitudes of um, Chinese officialdom and their hostility towards religion comes from the 19th century when the West was hardly into religious freedom. You know, mm-hmm. Christianity was the name of the game right. at that right. time in the West. It was this muscular Protestantism uh, that thought that Christianity was the most superior, and they were not going to, they were not advocating freedom of religion much right. at that point. So, uh, so this is the the 19th century attitude is what the Chinese absorbed. Hmm. Um, back to Tibet, uh, I also wanted to say that the approach to uh, Tibet on religious uh, freedom needs to be nuanced and and um, complex because you know the Tibet issue triggers this kind of instinctive paranoia and fear in Chinese officialdom uh, because, you know, in the 50s, the CIA did give military uh, and strategic training to uh, Tibetan um, rebels uh, against the uh, communist Mm -hmm. uh, Chinese. They did fly out um, Tibetans uh, out of Tibet and and sent them to Colorado, which is also high elevation for uh, military training. Um, So this uh, uh, this uh, memory alongside the 
longer memory of the opium wars and the whole humiliation at the hands of Western imperialism does figure in the instinctive uh, way that Chinese officialdom deals with Tibet. Uh, it's very unfortunate because I think they're uh, uh, wrongheaded about it. Mm-hmm. But really, when they think about uh, Tibetan religious autonomy, uh, they uh, and Tibetan people's um, demand for more autonomy, they immediately think of secession, and they immediately think that it's it's the Dalai Lama. Uh, sort of working uh, hand in glove with the West. I don't think that's true, but that is what many people in official circles in China believe. Hmm. So the approach to uh, it must keep this in mind that there is this kind of historically instinctive, reactive kind of thing that Chinese officialdom uh, um, reverts to. And, and the best way is to reassure them that uh, Tibetan secession is not what is in the cards, but religious uh, autonomy and uh, social autonomy for the Tibetan people. Hmm. So it's, it's two different things which constantly get in, conflated I see. in China. So, I mean, since the 1980s, there is kind of a new, people speak of a religious revival in China. Um, the government has just recently acknowledged this. There was a poll done by the East China Normal University in Shanghai that um, uh, said that 31% of Chinese over 16 are religious and 60% of those who describe themselves as religious are between the ages of 16 and 39. I just wonder, you know, if you know China, you have family there, and you are a scholar of the place, and you've been doing field work. Um, how would you start to talk about the contours uh, and the meaning of whatever is happening now in terms of religious revival in China? Um, well, I think uh, two crucial. there's a crucial difference between urban areas and... Um, and uh, rural areas. Uh, In urban areas, um, I would say Christianity is quite big amongst uh, urban people's uh, religious um, reawakening. Um, And again, this is maybe has something to do with, uh, you know, Christian culture, the appreciation of Christian culture as uh, an example of a kind of uh, uh, Western uh, modern culture. Hmm. So there is that kind of uh, slightly sort of pro-Western culture in urban areas, uh, and that would fuel it. Um, And there are even, there's even a kind of movement of... um, educated people who call themselves cultural Christians, oh. um, who who don't really believe in the supernatural aspects of Christianity, but they appreciate Christian culture now, that's as a, a kind of civilized, uh, modern, uh, progressive kind of culture. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So there is that. Um, and, you know, I think that 
the the ideological days of uh, Maoism provided people with a complete sort of cosmology that uh, their whole lives would be dedicated to the revolution to bring about good uh, in their societies. And um, then uh, you have the um, deflation of that balloon uh, and... Um, with all the events of the 1980s and 90s, and uh, people just see that, uh, you know, there's there's a lot that people have a, a fairly cynical view sometimes of that whole um, uh, communist uh, narrative. Right. And uh, so it no longer offers them the whole cosmology that uh, they they seek or, or need to give meaning to their lives mm-hmm. uh, and to help them face death. I think religion is something that is a, is a very powerful force uh, because um, in the end, uh, the explanation for death that science gives us is not very satisfying. It doesn't, right. you know, help us to orient our lives and to give purpose and meaning and motivation hmm. to the things that we pursue. Uh, and uh, religion, all religions deal with that most important uh, question and issue that we all have to deal with in our individual lives, and that is facing death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, now that uh, uh, the, the communist story has uh, become... Um, less satisfying, uh, so so something else needs to uh, replace that. No, many in the countryside. Oh yeah. yes, tell me Go that. Ahead. So you're doing your yeah. So you, you that you gave us the picture of the urban uh, of of Christianity in the urban areas, but your field work has been in the countryside, hasn't it? So what's happening there? Yes, um, this area of the countryside that I'm looking at is uh, very prosperous uh, and. Uh, they are very entrepreneurial people. They fan out across uh, China. The, they're, they're called uh, Wenzhou people uh, from the province of Zhejiang uh, in southeast China. And they have a reputation in China as being uh, extremely entrepreneurial and very economically successful and um, very adept at um, commerce and trade. And uh, but what is uh, seldom recognized in China about the Wenzhou people is that uh, they have uh, revived uh, so much uh, traditional Chinese culture and uh, traditional popular religion. Um, And that's what I discovered uh, doing field work is that uh, the amount, these people are very uh, dynamic. In in that sense, they're very modern in that uh, they carry around cell phones. They get the latest uh, technology of first VCD and then DVD players and and uh, and yet they are very traditional in that they've revived so much uh, traditional Chinese uh, religious rituals, traditional lunar festivals, mm. uh, and uh, traditional kinship uh, institutions uh, like um, uh, lineage organizations. And they have uh, very elaborate uh, ancestor halls where they conduct uh, uh, sacrifices to their ancestors. 
uh, annually. Uh, and they go to the graves at uh, Qingming Festival, uh, the tombs of their ancestors, to sweep the graves. This is a festival in springtime when the whole family as well as extended families or whole lineages will go up into the mountains where their ancestors' tombs are. They would sweep the tombs and uh, clean it up once a year uh, so that their ancestors will be nice and comfortable and won't have to deal with the weeds. Oh. And they'll <laughs> offer food sacrifices to their ancestors and then eat them, eat the food afterwards. Chinese people don't like to waste food. Right. So uh, this food is uh, given to the ancestors. It's blessed by the ancestors and then they eat them themselves uh, as a sort of picnic. Um, so, I mean, I'm just imagining if you describe that, say, to some of your fellow academics um, in the United States or in Australia, they might, they might use that word superstition again, right? They might say, well, this is backward. Yeah. This is superstitious. This is not legitimate. So, I mean, what's your response yeah. to that? Well, you know, uh, I've known many Chinese who I've taken around uh, when they visited um, the U.S. or Australia. And, and they're just uh, um, taken aback by how superstitious Westerners still are because <laughs> there are so many churches. Uh, the churches are packed and full, and they just can't believe that in the White House in the United States, you've got a president who says uh, to an interview, interviewer, journalist interview that, you know, um, did you consult your father when you um, decided to attack Iraq, to invade Iraq? Yeah. And President Bush Jr. said, no, that's not, not the right father to consult. Uh, you know, I uh, consulted a higher father. You know, so <laughs> that, that strikes them as wrong-headed. Yeah, uh -huh. as rather funny, as uh -huh. rather curious uh -huh. in the late, late, uh, early twenty-first century. Hmm. Hmm. Now, there's also a lot of talk about um, Confucianism being. Well, I mean, I know that there have been some best-selling books, uh, millions of copies sold of kind of conf you know basic Confucian philosophy, um, and that also the Chinese government is to some extent reviving Confucian beliefs, launching Confucian institutes in other countries. And, um, you know, let's say the Financial Times, um, this, is how, this is how they analyze this. They said, this revival is at the heart of the party's ambitious effort to reframe its single-party rule as a part of a long-standing Chinese tradition of benevolent and enlightened government. I is that the explanation for you, or is it the whole explanation? I think um, it is part of the explanation. Uh, the, in in the history of China, there's always been different kinds of Confucianism. Uh, there was a very powerful kind that was, uh, we could call it state Confucianism. And uh, Confucianism was, for 2000, over 2,000 years, part of the state apparatus. It uh, was combined with the uh, philosophy of legalism in the Han Dynasty. Uh, and uh, so Confucian uh, teaching and learning and uh, ritual practice and legalist uh, 
kind of philosophy of uh, more sort of uh, state, utilitarian statecraft uh, was combined together. And there's always been a tension between these two very different strains of thought operating as one within the Chinese imperial state. Confucianism is the kind of the soft approach. It uh, teaches moderation. It teaches uh, not to lie um, in governing, do not rely on punishment and repression and mm. laws, yeah. but rely on education, on persuasion, on ritual to uh, improve the people and to uh, bring about, uh, maintain social order. Right. Um, legalism, of course, relies on beatings and imprisonment and, mm. you know, repressive law. Uh, but these two were combined. So, but but there is in within state Confucianism always uh, uh, one force of uh, Confucian uh, scholar officials who sought to use their p- powers of uh, oratory and persuasion to persuade the emperor to go the moderate way. Uh, and not come down too hard on the people. Um, And then you also have Confucianism that is outside of the state. You have local Confucian academies of uh, scholars who would engage in uh, debates and scholarship uh, and also social activism in their local uh, communities, uh, charitable activities and so on. And so you do have Confucian uh, teachings outside of the state. So, so yeah, and I'm, that, I'm curious yeah, that about should be that, recognized. That I mean, I think that I think that some Western observers look at um, look at at citizen Chinese citizens' new interest in Confucius, his emphasis on right behavior and social good and and acting noble, and see that as as appearing as a kind of antidote to this. Uh, capitalism run wild um you know so again i want to ask you is that analysis correct is it is it too simple how how would you describe that well, yes, I, I do think uh, that would be an antidote, uh, but it's not the single antidote that Chinese um, traditions have available. Mm-hmm. Uh, Buddhism is a, another antidote. Uh, Buddhism tells us that, uh, you know, don't get too taken up with the desires of this world, that we uh, live uh, in interconnection with all sentient beings, not just other human beings of the same species, but also across species with other animals and insects and birds bird life and marine life. Um, Taoism also tells us that, uh, you know, don't, uh, you know, go in pursuit of earthly uh, reputation and ambition. Um, What's important uh, is to be connected uh, with the oneness of nature and the cosmos and to seek simplicity. Hmm. So um, I I would say that... uh, Probably all of the different uh, traditional religious uh, cultures uh, in China and also uh, to a uh, quite an extent, uh, Christianity too, mm-hmm. would have these counterbalancing um, uh, merits and, and uh, when towards you're, when, the excesses of capitalism. And when you're there, do you experience that kind of uh, new curiosity uh, or reaching out to these traditions among the Chinese you know and work with? Yeah, in my area, 
um, what I see uh, are these local people, Wenzhou in Wenzhou, they're really good at making money. They're very profit-minded, and they can engage in really hard bargaining, and they can uh, uh, be, you know, in real pursuit of money. But at the same time, uh, because of their religious affiliations, uh, their c uh, considerations for the afterlife, they're also very willing to donate money and to give away money. Mm. Um, so these donation drives are quite successful for the most part. In if a temple needs to be built, if a, an ancestor hall uh, that's been destroyed by a typhoon needs uh, a restoring, um, if a uh, com uh, a religious or uh, uh, local community festival uh, is going to mount a religious procession and carrying out a god uh, in the processions, there are local wealthy families who are donating quite a lot of money. Their names are put up on stone tablets, just as it has for at least a thousand years in China, and that's what historians read as these stone tablet mm. dedications of the building of new temples. Who don't Donated what? Uh, for what occasion was this temple built? Um, this is the source of uh, uh, historians of China to find out uh, uh, the past. And uh, today they're doing the same thing once again in the Wenzhou. Um, so, and, and also... You know, this idea that uh, the Buddhist idea of merit, that you accumulate merit through right. good deeds. Right. And uh, once uh, you die, you're going to be reincarnated. Uh, and, uh, you know, your good deeds offset your bad deeds. And there's a kind of uh, um, a balance sheet kept uh, that, you know, do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And uh, this you will... will um, will determine the trajectory of your uh, path of reincarnation, whether you're going to be reincarnated into a more comfortable life or not. Right. And, I mean, were you aware of expressions of these spiritually and religiously motivated um, reactions in after the recent earthquake? Was that I wasn't the there dynamic? in China. I haven't gone back uh, mm -hmm. uh, to China, but I have uh, read some Chinese media discussions mm -hmm. um, because uh, they experienced a lot of um, charitable activities coming from overseas Chinese, um, from Taiwan, religious organizations from Taiwan mm -hmm. and Hong Kong and uh, parts of Southeast Asia. And there have been discussions... Uh, in China about why it is that overseas Chinese seem to be more ready to donate and come over and help us and more uh, more generous than we ourselves. Uh, and I think that would only lead to more interest uh, and acceptance of um, religion in China. And again, the earthquake is something so stupendous uh, and shocking and mm -hmm. traumatic with massive numbers of death that uh, those kinds of situations would lead to more um, spiritual quests and, and um, uh, you know, stopping people in their tracks uh, f uh, and, and making them rethink and reflect their everyday ordinary lives uh, to, to seek um, more transcendence and to seek um, more meaning to their lives. I do want to ask you about Falun Gong, which um, is a combination of elements of Taoism, Buddha, Buddhism, and Qigong. Um, 
um, has been very violently suppressed in China, and that's something that people are quite aware of in the West, has been covered by the media. I mean, where does that fit into this picture? How is that to be understood in terms of a mm-hmm. China, which on other fronts, where on other fronts it looks like there is more openness um, to religious energies, diverse religious right. energies. yeah. Well, it would it would be interesting to speculate. Uh, had the uh, Falun Gong uh, uh, issues um, cropped up uh, today in China, would the state have reacted, or rather overreacted, mm. in the same manner as it did back in uh, 1999 mm. when it suppressed uh, Falun Gong? So I would think that the state uh, is slightly different and um, would be a bit more open uh, today. Um, at that time, I think there was a... a a number of the concerns that the state had. One was the extent to which Falun Gong was so well organized that it uh, managed to uh, bring so many people from across the country to Beijing to sit in quiet demonstration outside Zhongnanhai. Mm. Uh, and, And so the extent of its ability to organize was uh, very worrying to a state that uh, you know doesn't like um, independent organizations outside its control. I mean, so uh, or is that Christi- it didn't know about. Is, is, okay, <laughs> yeah. but is Christianity not well organized? I mean, is Buddhism not well organized? What 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 distinguished this? Uh, yeah, less organized than they, hmm. uh, more penetrated by the state. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the the other concern I think that the state had uh, was the whole issue of science versus religion again, or, or spirituality. If you know, Falun Gong is not quite a religion, um, but yeah, it was. I think be- the the issue that brought the protest protest uh, to Beijing uh, by Falun Gong practitioners mm-hmm. was that uh, uh, scientists had been mal- maligning them. Uh, scientists uh, accused them and denigrated them for, uh, you know, teaching that uh, this kind of um, um, exercise that uh, they were teaching had any um, curative properties or oh. abilities oh. Uh, that it uh, resulted in good health. That And so scientists were saying only, you know, uh, modern medicine can help people. Uh, and so, uh, and again, accused them of superstition. So, you know, of course, the state uh, fairly uh, squarely stands on the side of science. Right. So and, the, the party said yeah. that Falun Gong was advocating superstition, spreading fallacies and hoodwinking people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the general accusation. Yeah. This is something we didn't quite touch on at the beginning when we were talking about Chinese history in a long view. But a point that you've made in your work um, is that uh, the state, that, that there was always a, a, a profound and vast religiosity in in China, diverse, of course, but that it was never institutionally uh strong in the way that, say, the church was institutionally organized and strong in Europe. Um, and yes. so, I mean, that that is a context in which I hear you talking about Falun Gong as something which seemed to be um, an institutional force in a way that was unusual 
in in Chinese yes. culture. Huh. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, the uh, the Buddhists never had a kind of centralized uh, organization that connected up uh, Buddhist temples and monasteries across the land. Uh, and nor did the Taoists. They had dispersed, localized lineages, uh, tracing uh, themselves many generations back to a founding master. Mm-hmm. But these were not all uh, interconnected and linked up into any kind of centralized organization. Okay. Um, and and um, they always had to sort of vie with the Buddhists and the Taoists. Always had to vie with there each other. There was kind of a really at the competition court. among religions, right? Yes, uh-huh. yes, yes. They uh, wanted to earn um, favors at the court, mm. and if they could get the ruling family to become devout to Buddhists or Taoists, then there's a lot of um, uh, state funding. Uh, mm-hmm. that they could tap into to build more temples and monasteries mm. and uh, erect giant statuary or whatnot. Uh, if they become the favored religion of the land, then they could get state sponsorship. Mm. Um, so the state, of course, was able to uh, play them one, uh, one off each other and right. <laughs> keep them weak. Right. Yeah. It's, and, and, you know, in the West, there were periods when uh, the church... Uh, had military power, right? You know, the Vatican right. had its own army. Significant and, periods, mm-hmm. yeah, and then it uh, went uh, marching off to the Middle East uh, in the, um, um, right. what do you call it? The uh, the Crusades. The, uh, Crusades, yes. yes. <laughs> so, no. but but uh, in general, uh, Buddhism and Taoists uh, did didn't uh, have that kind of uh, mm-hmm. institutional power. So I know we've been going a long time. There's so much here. I just want to ask you a few more questions. Are you with me? Okay. Right? okay. Yes. Yeah. Something very interesting, uh, and this is one uh, one focus of your work. You you suggested in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong, which had a different history uh, to uh, in the last few hundred years, that that there there's been that that you can see a different kind of encounter between Chinese religious sensibilities and modernity um, and that there have been diff- that there are different dynamics and that those are perhaps also um, having some ripple effects now as these as these connections between mainland China and these places open up in a different way talk talk to me about that talk to me about religion in Taiwan and how that is a different development okay um yeah, you know, as I said, uh, the Kuomintang uh, were equally um, hostile to traditional religions, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek himself was a Christian, and he thought uh, Christianity, uh, and actually when uh, Kuomintang went to China, they uh, the government supported Christianity much more than the traditional religions. And so the Kuomintang uh, also wanted to eradicate superstition, but uh, they were less uh, disciplined and organized uh, and systematic about it, and okay. therefore they were less systematic in their destructiveness, whereas the communists were much better disciplined and organized. And so the destruction was <laughs> much greater in mm. China. Uh, but the Kuomintang went to Taiwan, and, uh, you know, Taiwan was just a place where a lot of people, different kinds of people retreated, uh, not just the Kuomintang and its soldiers. Um, in 
mainland China in uh, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a lot of what I would call revitalization movements. These are uh, gr- very large groups with uh, a certain kind of religious inspiration, but they were uh, quite modern in many different ways in that uh, they, they preached a kind of... A, uh, so- social salvation. They might have a, a, a savior figure. They were based on loosely on traditional Buddhist, uh, Taoist, uh, popular religion kind of uh, uh, forces. But uh, they had a modern uh, twist about them. And um, my colleague um, Prasenjit Dwara calls them re- um, redemptive uh, societies. They they mm. pre- preached um, uh, freedom from uh, alcoholism and opium. Uh, they preached uh, doing good in the world. Uh, they preached, uh, you know, connecting up with uh, certain gods or the the salvation uh, Maitreya Buddha or or so forth. There are many different kinds uh, uh, all across China, especially northern China. Uh, but they were uh, really decimated by both the Kuomintang and the communists, who treated them not as um, revitalization movements who were doing some social good and attending to the extreme poverty uh, and disaster relief in China in the first part of the 20th century. But they were treated like peasant rebellions because the Kuomintang and communists were at each other's throats. They militarily uh, in a civil war, and they did brooked no other contenders for the throne. Right, so they treated these groups uh, as uh, potential rivals uh, hmm. who would gather too much of a mass following, uh, and so they were exterminated. But the the ones that survived these uh, kind of extermination campaigns, uh, the, the extermination went on all the way into the fifties in hmm. China. Hmm. But the ones who survived it managed to make their way to uh, Taiwan, and Guomindang, um, you know, uh, was uh, selective about how it treated them. Um, some of them, like the Iguandao, were treated very harshly. The others were just kind of left alone um, if they towed the line and so forth. Uh, but overall, the Kuomintang policy, according to my colleague uh, D- uh, R- Richard Madsen at UC San Diego, who has come out with a book on uh, Taiwan, uh, and also uh, my colleague... Um, let me think just a minute. I can't remember Well, tell name. me, you know, you yeah. tell a story yeah. about a pilgrimage in 2000 to a yes. maritime goddess. Uh-huh. Maz, Maz, how would you say that? Mazu? Mazu, Mazu. Yes. Would you would you just tell that yeah. story of the, and, oh, what, okay. and what that means? Why that's yeah. interesting the, and important? The uh, so so the Guomindang allowed a lot of popular religion to go on, uh, and uh, and in more recent times, because uh, Taiwan has become so much more democratic, and you have a multi-party system that is legalized, uh, and they found that they have you know to get votes, they have to appeal to the common people who will uh, is their voting constituency. They have to campaign. 
decaying, in fact, in these uh, popular religion temples, the more influential ones. They have to mm. be seen as respecting the, the most, uh, one of the most powerful goddesses in Taiwan, who is Mazu, a maritime um, goddess, who was brought to Taiwan from mainland China, uh, where her cult started in the Song Dynasty a thousand years ago. Oh. And her native place is Fujian province, from which most Taiwanese come from. So uh, in Taiwan, especially since the lifting of martial law in 1987, popular religion has had a field day of, uh, of revival, as well as a lot of these Buddhist organizations, some of which are very wealthy and um, uh, very transnational in their orientation. Yeah. Uh, one such Buddhist organization is called Ji uh, Merit uh, Foundation, and founded by a very modest uh, Taiwanese nun in the 1960s, and she has started a movement that has really appealed to the middle class uh, in Taiwan, who are uh, quite well-to-do and have donated a lot of funds, and uh, many of whom are are willing to put their own lives on the line to go to uh, disaster, to join disaster relief, and, and they, many of they, them they went were, to Sichuan province. After the earthquake, right? After the, yes, yes, yes. They, they mm-hmm. pay their own way, and they have g- undergone training for disaster relief, so they know what to do. Mm. So Tsuji uh, uh, Merit Foundation, uh, you know, is um, always poised and ready to go to any point in the world which needs disaster relief. And mm. many of them, of course, uh, went to Sichuan province after the earthquake. Mm. And uh, many people at the earthquake uh, place were very impressed by how both Western foreigners as well as overseas Chinese who participated in earthquake relief by the way that they treated the dead. Um, Because... um, Whereas many very secular Chinese uh, earthquake uh, relief people sort of unceremoniously dump the body into mass graves and whatnot. These foreigners, whether the Westerns, Westerners or the overseas Chinese from Taiwan and Hong Kong and so on, did a little religious ceremony, whether it be Buddhist or uh, burning some incense or saying some prayers and, and so forth. Uh, they treated the dead with great respect. Uh, and I, I've had, because um, I've interviewed uh, Tsuji Foundation members in uh, Taiwan when right. I was there in the year 2000. And uh, one woman told me how she participated in an earthquake uh, relief disaster in uh, that the epicenter was in the central Taiwan in 96, I believe. And she said that when they, they were the first to arrive, even bef- before the soldiers came. But these soldiers when they came, they were youngsters, 18 years old, who there's um, universal male military service in Taiwan for two years. And these soldiers were totally freaked out by all these dead bodies lying around, uh, limbs strewn about and blood. And they they were just petrified. They couldn't move. And Siji gathered them all together, all the relief people, and they conducted a serious... um, Buddhist um, chanting for the dead, mm. and that that just going through the ritual, uh, honoring the dead, um, and it, it really brought a lot of peace to the soldiers, and just that experience of going uh, through the ritual um, gave them more confidence. 
to face the dead. Uh, and that's what Tsuji, uh, the member of Tsuji uh, Merit Foundation, told me. And from then on, after they did the ritual, then they could go about their business uh, with mo- much more calm and more efficiency and effectiveness. So I imagine that that uh, is uh, what happened and that uh, probably left some deep impressions on the local Chinese in Sichuan province. That does come back to the point you made a while ago that religions, unlike um, other uh, other forms of uh, other aspects of culture, address these issues of life and death directly in a way that right. politics can't, ideology can't, science can't. Right, mm-hmm. yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's why, you know, the secularization thesis is uh, basically dead at this point. Right. Um, no, the secularization for a long time, thesis is... Yeah, the for idea. a long time, scholars mm-hmm. believe that, uh, you know, with modernization, uh, we are leaving religion behind. We are leaving all those superstitions and magic behind, and mm-hmm. we no longer need them. Uh, but uh, really, uh, it's a grim world what science has given us. Uh, we we still need um, a higher uh, kind of uh, pursuit, I think, uh, to transcend all this uh, the the grim realities of, of our everyday lives. Mm. We need these uh, more transcendent um, worlds um, of uh, uh, with, both within us and beyond us. But, you know, it, it is transcendent, and yet what you're describing about tr- how dead bodies are treated and how that, in fact, matters to human beings is very practical. Yes. I mean, it's very yes. earthy at the same time. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. But, yeah, I think that we would all also, you know, our, we, we would, we would like our dead bodies to be t- treated with respect, <laughs> right. and we would like to be remembered after we die. We, I think um, all of us do have some kind of yearning for immortality. Mm. Uh, and, and there is a lot of room for a sort of mixture of religiosity and secularism. Yes in our modern societies. Because when I talk with these, um, I call them ex-peasants down in uh, Wenzhou, they are of peasant background. They've um, all experienced hard work in the fields, uh, but now they're into their uh, family industries and in trade and so on. Uh, But, you know, when I talk to them, they're not uh, total believers. They have their doubts. They said, well, they say that... Uh, you know, after life, there's a, a, a realm called hell that, uh, you know, we have to appear before the 10 judges of hell and be judged about our performance in our uh, living uh, years. And um, uh, I'm not sure I totally believe it. So they entertain this kind of half doubt, half belief. Uh, but I think in the end, it's the ritual practice. It's going through the rituals, their life cycle rituals of when weddings and funerals uh, and birth rituals and new house launching rituals and the, the various uh, celebrations of God's birthdays and um, um, various uh, lunar festival rituals. It's going through uh, rituals that connect uh, those moments that you connect up with the world of the gods beyond where the gods come down and and uh you're in their presence, or your ancestors come down when you conduct an ancestor sacrifice, uh, and you're in that 
in their presence. There's this kind of sacred moment mm -hmm. that gives you a kind of renewal from the earthly life that uh, can be very tedious after a while. And, mm. and it also gives you that kind of community uh, spirit that uh, all the members of your community, whether it's your kinship community or your local community, come together for this festival. They're, they're donating money for the common good, uh, for something meaningful to remember uh, some local god who did some good deeds for the community in the past. And this kind uh, of recovery of yeah. ritual does bring Chinese culture back to some foundations, doesn't it? And even the original, yes. the ritual, original spirit of Confucianism, as you described it to me. I mean, it's very interesting, that circle. Yeah, I, it's it's uh, such a tragedy that throughout the 20th century, there's been so much decimation of culture, uh, traditional culture. And traditional culture was really given uh, a very reductionistic bad name. I mean, certainly there were bad things about mm -hmm. traditional culture, but you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Uh, and Chinese culture you know, uh, is so long and enduring. There are such wonderful things in its past that needs to be recuperated mm. and revived uh, because uh, it can play a very beneficial role for all the modern problems that China faces today. Right. It just my last question, explain this to me, that the Beijing Olympics will begin on the eighth day of the eighth month of the year 08 at 8.08.08 p.m. <laughs> Yes, right. <laughs> well, it's because the number eight, uh, ba in Mandarin uh, and also Cantonese, uh, uh, it, it rhymes with the word fa. Uh, fa means, um, you know, develop and expand. And, and it means, you know, it often has this kind of uh, uh, economic meaning of, oh. of get rich, yeah. uh, which is like good luck, prosperity, good luck, f good fortune. And so the eight is magical. Uh, you'll never find the number eight available for your cell phone number. If you, you know, oh. you get to pick your cell phone number because yeah. it's already taken by other people. I see. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh. Well, this is really fabulous. I, I'm going to be quiet for a minute. There's one question from behind the glass, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, yes. Okay. Mitch. Okay. 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 Um, just a couple of quick questions. When you, you talked about the cultural Christians, what, what would be some qualities that they are embracing, emulating, that they call culturally Christian? Um, I, I would just say, you know, general human humanistic kind of qualities. Um, uh, this uh, Ability, sort of universalistic outlook that uh, you'll uh, treat people well uh, regardless of whether uh, they're um, related to you or not. Mm -hmm. They're part of your family or lineage or local area. Uh, this notion that, you know, uh, that comes out of Christianity that uh, we are all God's children. 
Um, this kind of universalism, I think, okay. uh, would be of value. Mm-hmm. Uh, equality, I think, is also of value because, uh, you know, if we're all one before God, um, they were all equal in God's eyes. Uh, and uh, so this basic uh, egalitarianism. Um, okay. Um, is there anything? Uh, maybe it's associated with democracy um, oh, that yeah. uh, many educated people yeah, sure. aspire to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there anything we haven't talked about that seems, I mean, I know there's lots we haven't talked about, but anything that you would want to mention or add? Um Oh yes, uh, my my book uh, that is coming out forthcoming, uh, yes. coming out later this year is uh, is called um, Chinese Religiosities: Afflictions of Modernity and State Formation. Yeah. I'm the editor, and there are a series of uh, articles uh, tracing. Um, changing attitudes towards religion in China for all the different uh, major religious groups in China, Islam, Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, right. popular religion. It's a very interesting Christianity. Book. Yeah, and we'll be, yeah. we'll be mentioning it um, generously. Yeah. And um, I have my own uh, monograph on... Um, uh, rural Wenzhou Religious Revival and Indigenous uh, Civil Society. It's called Reenchanting Modernity, Sovereignty, Ritual Economy, and Indigenous Civil Order in Coastal China. Okay. And that's still in progress. All right. Uh, but it's about that local area. Right. You've also written a book about Guanxi, about the concept of Guanxi. Do you think of that as a yes. spiritual, um, as having spiritual implications for who, who Chinese people are? Um, yes, uh, I think uh, Guanxi feeds into a fundamental kind of unconscious uh, Chinese ethics, ethical mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. Uh, because it's predicated on the fundamental principle of reciprocity in social relations. Mm-hmm. That uh, And this comes out of Confucian culture, mm-hmm. that uh, Confucius taught that uh, the famous line of Confucius from his classics is Li Shang Wang Lai, uh, the ritual or the gift uh, must be uh, exchanged. It must come and go. Hmm. So um, in human relations, uh, you know, whoever does us a good deed, uh, we must reciprocate. And there's this whole notion that uh, in relations between two people, uh, it's a kind of ongoing uh, mutual obligation and uh, mutual indebtedness. So uh, we're not um, isolated uh, um, sort of uh, individuals uh, with hard and fast boundaries between us, but uh, we are at any given time, I owe you something, uh, and at another time, you owe me something. So we're caught in this kind of indebted, mutually interdependent relationship. And that's how Chinese people tend to interact with each other. Okay. Well, I um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, okay. Well, I hope excited. I gave you enough to you gave, work with. You you're gave going me to... enough to work with. Oh, okay. So you're going to edit it down oh, yes. to like a um, 10 minute or? No, no. We're going to edit it down oh. to an hour. 
which oh, which is about a full hour. Okay. Yes, yes, it's uh-huh. about it's about forty five minutes of of interview. Um, but I, oh, okay. there will be script, so I will be able okay, to fill in to bring people in oh, to make I see. it accessible. Yes, right. And uh-huh. we might have Great. some readings, um, perhaps some passages from your book or some things that are quoted in your book. So we'll let oh, you know I what's see. happening, okay. and it'll be exciting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so you'll let me know when this is going to be on, although yeah, I won't absolutely. be able to hear it. Well, uh-huh. we will We will send you a CD. You can also listen online. You can podcast it. Um, we have podcasters all over the world. So, But Colleen, oh, will, okay. Colleen will let you know exactly when it's done, and we'll, we'll send it to you in many forms. Okay, wonderful. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye. Yeah.